Good afternoon, and welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Will Murphy, the news director at WFIU, sitting in for Bob Zaltzberg, who's not able to uh, join us this afternoon. In the studio, as always, we have Mary Catherine Carmichael as co-host, and we have three guests in the studio. We'll introduce them in just a moment. If you'd like to join the program, please uh, feel free to call. The number is 877-285-9348. In Bloomington, 855-0811. And the uh, address, if you'd like to send an email, is noon at indiana.edu. All right, Catherine, good to see you. Good to see you. And uh, let's just send out a hey hey there to Bob. Yep. We're missing him. Uh, he's not able to be with us again this week. So, um, Bob, we miss you, and we're looking forward to seeing you again soon. Uh, that is absolutely true. I am uh, missing uh, his presence, and I'm sure <laughs> listeners are certainly missing his presence. We have three guests in this studio this afternoon, Matt Donovan, Carol McCord, and Mari Kermit-Canfield. And they're here to talk about a group here on campus called RAISE. And without further ado, let's just get right into it. And one of you tell us what RAISE is about. RAISE stands for Raising Awareness of Interactions in Sexual Encounters. And it is mainly a group of peer educators here on campus who go into the classroom and into the community to educate about sexual assault. That's right. That was Mari Kermit-Canfield, who is the graduate assistant in the Office of Women's Affairs who is currently running the program. She ran it last year, and she's ably running it again this year. My name is Carol McCord, and I'm the assistant dean for Women's Affairs, and I've been working with the program for about the 10 years that I – well, for the whole 10 years that I've been with the office. Um, Matt Donovan actually has – even further wisdom over, gained over years of work than I do. Matt, how long have you been with the program? I think I started with uh, my first year here, 89, 90 school year. Now, can I just ask quickly, uh, you're no longer a student, Matt. You're an alumnus and, and uh, you continue to work at the program. And Mari was saying before the show that you've actually helped to redraft some of the protocols and whatnot, some of the programming. What got you in your first year here to do this and why are you doing it? Some years after, I won't embarrass you by asking, how many years after you graduated from IU? Well, I have a background, first of all, in education. It's been a passion why I came to IU to study, and not only did I do an undergraduate in it, but also did my graduate work. And how I got started in in that 89-90 school year was I was actually in a fraternity, and we had our very first rape awareness program. And at the time, we had uh, basically two very well-intentioned uh, women come to the fraternity house and talk to the you know fraternity guys, basically educating them, saying that you know rape wouldn't exist if men would just stop raping women. That you know the fraternity behavior, that the fraternity environment is just this rape culture, and it was a very negative impact. And I thought it was a positive, uh, it was a worthy message, but it was not being conveyed very well. So the men in, that were in my pledge class, or I was working with at the time in the fraternity, you know, they were turned off and actually more negative towards with their attitudes towards women and I felt that it was something that as a man uh, that men have a role in this a positive role in reducing sexual assault on college campuses and that you know in the room in there there were a lot of uh, positive uh, lessons that could have been learned if it had been presented I think in a a more open and engaging manner so I uh, took the opportunity to get actively involved with the program at the time. And it was uh, with the Office of Women's Affairs that first they were doing call-outs to get students to come start talking to other students about this at the time. And so came, learned more about the program. And throughout my time with it, I've not only you know participated, but I also learned a lot from them. And the, so the program was in existence before you got involved. You weren't there at the ground floor, or were you? Actually, the program that I attended was not, not actually with the Office of Women's Affairs, but I wanted to get involved with it, and just at the same time, that was when they received a grant to start this program. So they did call-outs on campus, and I was reading about it, I think, actually in the IDS, and I went to an open meeting to learn more about it. Okay, Matt, I want to send your parents flowers. <laughs> <laughs> now, Carol, this is one of several groups on campus that deals with the problem of rape uh, yeah. and sexual assault, uh, domestic violence, whatever, on, on campus. Um, how does this fit into the sort of spectrum of organizations under uh, the aegis of OWA? Oh, that's a good question. Actually, there are, they are not all under the aegis of OWA. Um, this is one of the two. The Office of Women's Affairs was 
originally commissioned about 30 years ago by the chancellor of the campus. And the mission at that time was identified as, identif- as identifying and overcoming barriers or obstacles to equity of opportunity for women on campus, for faculty women, staff women, and students. And, of course, one of the barriers or obstacles is safety or having your safety compromised or fearing that your safety mm-hmm. will be compromised. Um, it's no secret that IU, as um, every other residential campus in this uh, um, country, have has troubles with sexual assault. And so one of the reasons that Office of Women's Affairs has been so involved is because it's through that. Um, the Dean for Women's Affairs, this time is Terry Dworkin, and she and the Dean of Students, Dick McKaig, co-chair also a campus-wide commission, the Commission on Personal Safety. And that commission is comprised of, of people who represent different entities on campus involved in safety-related things, from IU Police Department to the Safety Escort Service, parking operations, um, residence halls, and students from residence hall association. We also work with, there's one community group that's involved with that, which is Middleway House, who you all have had um, representatives of as guests on this program before. People in the community know of Middleway very much. Middleway su- supplies, serv- provides serv- services to all community members, including our students. And then on campus, we also have the Sexual Assault Crisis Service, which is operated out of the the campus health center. In the campus health center, there is CAPS, which is Counseling and Psychological Services, and out of CAPS is SACS. <laughs> and that is um, those services are counseling services provided by two um, trained counselors who are on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And they provide services to anyone who's experienced sexual assault, who has experienced sexual assault, not just on campus, but, but in their lifetime. So, And they also go out and do some programming. As well on campus, there are a number of student groups that are working really hard right in the last couple of years. We've seen a real resurgence of student activity in this arena, which has really been heartwarming to me to see. Um, and we are really happy that there are a lot of different groups working in, in different ways. One of the other groups that OA is responsible for having established is um, the IU Men's Coalition. Um, Nigel Pazzini, who heads that group up um, quite capably, energetically, and with a lot of um, thoughtfulness, started working with our office about three years ago. And he's been working to develop a group um, of men on campus who can support each other in carrying out the same kinds of activities that Matt Donovan here so <laughs> ably embodies. So there are quite a number of, of different groups, both on campus and off campus, that work with this issue. And not to say that it's enough attention, but it's um, – there's one other thing I would like to mention, which is through the Office of Women's Affairs, we received a grant from the Department of Justice about four years ago. And with that money, one of the things we did was set up a program that is part of orientation services. Now, orientation programs and services now runs that. And it's one session in the orientation program that the students, when they come over the summer for their two days of orientation, the students participate in this. It's called For Students Only because it's the only part of the program to which parents are actually not invited and it addresses issues of diversity now also, but primarily sexual assault prevention and awareness. It's a lot smaller a uh, focus than RAISE. RAISE works with, as the name indicates, not just sexual assault prevention, but also sort of gender communications and sort of some of the underlying cultural issues that um, play into the large number of sexual assaults we see, particularly in college campuses. Okay. I'll remind our listeners uh, that we're speaking today with representatives of RAISE, uh, Student Education Advocacy and uh, Outreach Organization uh, that Carol was just describing. If you'd like to participate in this conversation, 877-285-9348. In Bloomington, 855-0811. And the email address is noon at indiana.edu. Namari, I just sort of talked about the three prongs of your organization, the education, uh, advocacy, and outreach. Can you flesh that out a little bit as to what specifically the group does? Sure. Um, So education, advocacy, and outreach. Um, Education is probably our main goal for this program. We do a lot of presentations, um, both in the classroom and in Greek houses, student groups, residence halls, even out in the community. Um, 
those programs talk about issues of consent, um, sexual assault, gendered communication. Um, we do other outreach. We do a condom distribution twice a year where we try to reach as many people as we can to talk about the issue of consent as being a major part of safe sex. So good sex is consensual and safe. And um, and we also participate in a lot of other events that are hosted by different groups on campus. So we usually take part in tabling at the Vagina Monologues and Take Back the Night and then all the regular student group events like Welcome Fest. Okay. Part of, so, oh, go ahead, Carol. I just want to say part of, of why when Mars talking about taking part in the tabling, in addition to doing the educational programming that – that Matt has helped create actually still helps to to present sometimes, and that that Mari really coordinates. What we're trying to do also is bring in more students. So we recruit students because it is a peer presented program, mm-hmm. and um, so there's a lot of work that goes into both recruiting students to come in and present the program, and also in training the students then to present the program. So um, Mari is very involved in getting the word out there to people about the availability of the program for people who want to invite it into their classes, but also for letting people, students on campus who might be looking for an opportunity to get involved in something on campus that has some impact on the campus environment and um, perhaps hone some skills in terms of public speaking. Mm-hmm. Okay. We have a uh, caller on the line. Let's go to Don. Don? Hey, yes, hi. Hi. Um, as a parent of... Uh to IU students, and um, yeah, this is a subject, and we've been in the community for over 30 years, that uh, I wholeheartedly support. I guess my question is, is there any really statistics on the effectiveness? I, I certainly hope there is a document of what the community. Don, I uh, think we're breaking up uh, your phone signal there. Can you... Uh, I'm on a cell phone. Yeah, I kind, kind of figured. That sounds better. Um it's just uh, I'm trying to find out just as a parent and, and also a supporter for the whole concept of this, how whether there's statistical studies that show um, these efforts really produce results. I certainly hope that that's the the outcome. I mean, uh, I you know to me this is a really serious crime mm-hmm. and uh, has long-term consequences. So. I'd like to know whether your guests have any idea about how effective what they're doing is. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you. First of all, thank you for your support for it. And it's a really – I want to reiterate that we do consider this a very serious crime and we consider it um, also to have – sometimes incredibly long-lasting and deep complications for people involved, not just for people who've been actually victimized, but for friends and family of those who have been, mm-hmm. which is why we want to do this, pro- why we do this programming. The, the statistics in terms of effectiveness, that's a really good question. In fact, we don't have statisticness, statistics in terms of effectiveness about things like number of rapes, for instance, prevented or sexual assaults that are prevented. That's pretty close to impossible to gather. What we do have is information about how effective the type of programming that we present is in reaching audiences. So, for instance, uh, the program has changed over time. In the 10 years I've I've worked with it, it's gone through several incarnations, a couple of them pretty large and some smaller honing, of course. And since Matt's been working with it, even more than that. At this point, we have – part of the reason it's a peer program is because that seems to have a better effect in, in effectiveness in terms of people not turning off the program. The format of the program is that we have a male and female student who go into um, the classroom or the group and present together a scenario and stay in care of of a confusion um, between two people and two different views of what happened in a set of events. One evening, she feels she was sexually assaulted. He is surprised to hear that that's what her view is of of the experience. There then stay in character after giving the descriptions and answer questions from the audience. 
The reason we do that, use that form, which is, by the way, used nationally. It's been it's probably about the sixth incarnation of how to do these programs nationally. We go to conferences and things and talk with other people about effectiveness. I was going to ask you where the scripts come from. Yeah, the scripts are, present, are developed by a national organization that works with, with college campuses to develop this kind of work and has been used on a number of campuses, is, is being used currently in a number of campuses. And what, what the... The current script does two things specifically that help in being more effective. Um, and, and Don and I hope other listeners will be appreciate that this is kind of a fine-tuned issue to try to present to people. But one of the things it does is it invites in audience participation. If you go in and say, as Matt might have experienced when he saw the program he saw a number of years ago, we won't say how many – and, and it's presented by somebody who's supposed to be an expert and then they ask for, for questions. You raise your hand and you want to give the right answer or you don't want to appear not to know information. What we really want to do is help to change people's opinions because one of the things we know is that this kind of behavior is actually fairly well accepted on college campuses, which is why it's so pervasive. And so one of the things we want to do is get people to ask the questions that, that are really lurking in the back of their mind about these things. And if we require them to do it of these two people remaining in character as though they're their friends. So we say to them, don't ask the questions that you would ask because we know that you know all the answers. But instead, ask questions of these two that you think their friends might ask them if they were just telling them the story. It allows people to get at the myths that they might have that allow them to believe that this is an acceptable behavior or that the woman is indeed responsible for this happening to her or that the man believes that this is an acceptable way to interact with somebody and he doesn't recognize it as a problem. That's where we have some information about effectiveness. If, if you give a test, if you give a lecture and ask people just to give you answers, they are much more likely to get the information correctly but not change their attitudes about the situation later in a way that would have any impact on their behavior. Matt, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I think the just the history and the trend of, of the way the topic has been taught in, in you know schools and in college and even in the community, it, it's transitioned from knowledge and facts to, you know, do you know what rape is? What is consent? And what we've evolved towards is how do you apply this in the very complex interactions we find in the world? And that's where we see a lot of the high school students coming in. They, most of them have seen some type of a rape awareness program in their high school, so they know a lot of the facts. They even know a lot of the statistics. But yet what we're finding is, is when we ask them to apply it to a situation, and that's what Carol was talking about, where we role play a scenario and we ask them, you know, was this actually sexual assault? Whose fault was it? Or who took you know, responsibility for what happened? It's that processing behind uh, you know how the event works and, and what the underlying features. That's where the difficulty comes, and when they go out there and apply this in a real environment, they say, you know, but that's not really, you know, she didn't really say no. Well, she did say no in many ways, and moving ahead still, even though you know he's a nice guy or all those other factors which make it difficult for us to determine whether or not this was sexual assault. So, the trend has been much more effective because we actually push out the application or how this plays out in the real world. It's not the sort of cut-and-dried, black-and-white stats that you're dealing with. It's the gray areas and the innuendos and the inferences that one draws in the course of intercommunication. Can somebody here among the three of you uh, – the term we referenced earlier was gendered communication, and I'd like you to un- spend a little time unpacking what that means. <laughs> the two women point. I don't know if that's gendered communication. Well, I, I, I will try and please correct me as when, I, when, when I have – and this is practicing gendered communication here. Uh, I will state my opinion and they will correct it. Um, no, essentially I think it comes from uh, focusing on the communication between men and women and, and talking about sociotypes rather than stereotypes. Uh, looking at more a way in which uh, men, especially college men and college women, have received social messages about how they communicate expectations in a variety of situations. And specifically what we're talking about is more often in dating uh, relationship type scenarios. So what I talk about is a lot of these things come out in scripts or that we play on every day that build in these assumptions about these sociotypes. And what we focus on is really teasing out some of those disconnects and the fallacies and those assumptions that we bring into every day. Give us an example. Uh, what do you want me to do? <laughs> well, one of the, I mean, to be, um, not to 
to mm-hmm. change the the topic or to, to disagree with you, but more to add to it. What Matt's talking about is the sort of stereotypes of gendered um, interactions and the expectations that we all have, that what it means to, to behave in certain ways. And particularly we see this in the, in the social interactions that students experience on campus in um, – Frequently, party-type situations in which, for instance, there might be a great deal of alcohol also involved. And what happens is that there are a number of feelings that people have when they first come to campus of what is exactly the way I'm supposed to behave here? How, how does social life on campus go? And how am I supposed to interact? And what is the way to behave to be popular to fit in? And there tends to be a sense of, um, oh, guys are supposed to behave in certain ways, um, there's more support or allowance for men to be sort of rowdy, to be competitive, to be um, sexually aggressive. Sexually aggressive, and um, and there's now. In fact, that's an interesting thing because over time, that has remained um, pretty much the case. So if you go back to the 70s, 60s, 50s, that's exactly what we saw then. What's happened is that there has been a lot of change in terms of how women are supposed to behave. So there is a, a lot of complication for women about, are you supposed to be the one to draw the line? Why should he be the one to have to, to, to be aggressive and you have to be the one to draw the line? Or if you don't want to draw the line too far back and be sort of seen as somebody who doesn't have a social life, doesn't get along, doesn't interact. Um, a cold fish. Oh, there we go. You're doing a wonderful job. So I can just say it <laughs> this way and you, you can sort of say the sort of stereotypes for me. A cold I fish that. seems to me an example of gendered communication that carries a lot of baggage. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Or definitely. tease. I mean, there's yeah. still – I mean, to, to be really direct about words, you know, if you, if you use the term stud and slut, for instance mm-hmm. – I can give a group of people the same definition of a person who has a lot of sexual contact or dates a lot of people. And for a guy, if I say it's a guy, you can get stud out of that. If I say player. it's a woman, yeah, yeah, a player, stud, right. If it's a woman, slut might be the, the, the term that comes up. Well, those are very different um, judgments associated with those two descriptors mm-hmm. and very laden. And so it gets really complicated for people trying to figure out what to do. Um, and so that's – when we talk about gender communication, that's the kind of thing that we're, that we're addressing. OK. All righty. I'll remind our listeners we're uh, just about at the halfway mark of our uh, program. We're speaking with three representatives from the group RAISE here on campus, an education and outreach and advocacy group uh, dealing with uh, sexual assaults and safe sex and things like that. If you'd like to join us in the conversation, the number is 877 877- Two eight five nine three four eight in Bloomington eight five five zero eight one one. If you'd like to comment uh, via email, the address is noon at indiana edu. We'll be right back. You're listening to Noon Edition on member supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage, using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2 owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin Real Estate, classic bungalow-inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington, www.southdunnstreet.info. This evening, the IU Opera Theater opens their production of Mozart's Don Giovanni, conducted by David Efron, with stage direction by Tito Capobianco and a new design by C. David Higgins. You can find our special feature, Who's Who in Don Giovanni, produced by Mona Segatola-Slami and Adam Schweigert, and an interview with designer C. David Higgins on our website at wfiu.indiana.edu. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Will Murphy, doing my best to fill in for uh, Bob Salzberg. We wish his quick return to this program. In the studio this afternoon, we have co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael and three guests who have kindly uh, given of their time this afternoon. Matt Donovan, an alumnus of IU, Carol McCord, the assistant dean for women's affairs here at IU, and Mari Kermit Canfield, 
who is the coordinator of a program called RAISE, and that's the topic of discussion uh, this afternoon. Uh, RAISE, a group that deals in education and advocacy on sexual assault, domestic violence, and things like that here on campus, safe sex, and so on. Uh, during the break, Mari, we were talking about uh, the other student groups, and really this is this panoply of topics we're discussing this afternoon really involve a whole host of social issues that I would assume involve a lot of uh, different groups because it involves questions of safe sex, it involves questions of alcohol uh, consumption, social attitudes, all kinds of things that go on uh, at a university environment. Maybe you can speak a little bit about the different groups that you work with. Um, well, there are five student groups on campus that really work together to deal with this issue. There is our group RAISE, which is run through the Office of Women's Affairs. There is the Women's Students Association, WSA, and um, they are also advised by Carol McCord, our <laughs> dean, and I believe they were st started under our office. And um, they organize an event called Take Back the Night, which is this year on October 5th at 6.30 in Dunmeadow, which is a national event. It's a rally and a vigil and then a march where um, women go to take back the streets and feel safe walking about our, about the streets. And then men are asked to march with the women, to be there with the women. Okay. Um, there is the IU Men's Coalition, the IUMC, which is run by a man called Nigel Pizzini, who also works for the Office of Women's Affairs, and they are working to change the men's role in preventing sexual assault, and they're really wonderful. There is the FMLA, the Feminist Majority Leadership Alliance, and they are part of a national group, um, the FMLA, and they do a lot of other work. They run a women's health fair every year, and they are also involved in all these events, and I think they're the major organizers for the Vagina Monologues, which happens in February. And then there is the Friends of Middleway House, which is a student group that works to fundraise and support Middleway House. And they are big proponents of a part of the registration process that is a checkoff box where they ask students to donate $3 each semester when they register for classes. And that goes to a fund that supports um, the Middleway House crisis line and the OSAs, the on-scene advocates who work at Middleway House and go to the hospital when there is an assault reported. And all these groups work together in April for Sexual Assault Awareness Month, and we do a month-long event called Thursdays in Black where we ask people to wear black every Thursday, all black, and, then, and pins that say, ask me why I'm wearing black. And then when somebody asks you, you can talk about with, with the person about sexual assault for you know, maybe two minutes, but you get to spread the awareness. And that's part of an international um, initiative as yeah, well. I believe it was started in South America. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to say that the student groups, Women's Student Association, FMLA and Friends of Middleway are all student groups that work completely um, on their own. They have faculty advisors. So my role, for instance, with WSA is only as a faculty advisor, just um, which is pretty minimal. These are groups of students who have just for their out of their own concerns about getting involved on campus have taken it upon themselves to get active in these groups just as the students who work with the RAISE program have taken it upon themselves to get involved with this too. And so I want to say that I very much appreciate their um, all the work of the student groups. These, these issues um, are best addressed by students. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's partly a cultural phenomenon as we're talking about in terms of the um, gendered communications and the cultural phenomenon is taking place in the student group. And so um, I can support these groups. I can go out and try to get funds to bring um, in to keep supporting them. Matt can bring his expertise to helping us to develop programming and, and training. But the reality is it needs to be the students themselves who are doing this. And in the last couple of years, I've really watched student groups, all these student groups work together and step up to the plate to really make some impact and say we are really unhappy with the fact that these kinds of activities are occurring on our campus and we want to make a difference. I, I love this message and I think it's really important and it's great training in ways to think about um, this sort of thing but it occurs to me that sexual encounters don't start in college and well, some, for some for <laughs> some, some they do but I mean oftentimes they start prior to that well I never mind. I'm still waiting. Anyway yeah <laughs> I'm not even going there. I <laughs> uh, want to bad, not going to. Um, 
Have, is there any – you talked about other programs that take place in the high schools, but it seems like this kind of thought training is really important. And I wonder um, if this is strictly campus-oriented or if any of the outreach that you folks do reaches down into some of the lower ages. Yeah, we do. We work with some with, with group – with um, – Younger people, but very minimally. Mm-hmm. Middle Way has a program, an educational program that goes out into the mm-hmm. high schools. And in fact, Planned Parenthood has in the past had programs that have gone out to the high schools to share with students, in fact, in middle school and elementary school, messages about being aware of one's environment and careful mm-hmm. and thoughtful about interactions with other people. Why are parents not included in this um, when you do this during orientation? Is it a little, you hope people will be, talk more freely if their mom and dad aren't there? Or is mm-hmm. it- in all honesty, yes, we do. Yeah. And we're targeting interactions that are occurring when mom and dad aren't there. Sexual and, so- and um, social interactions, party kinds of interactions are not going to be occurring with moms and dads present. And so it's really a matter of helping people to become aware of their own interactions among each other. Yeah. There is a call. Is there a oh, call? So okay. I'm going to put the on Mary Catherine for a Good minute. Luck. And we'll go to Gall. Gall? Yeah, hi. Hi. Uh, nice to hear your voice, Joe McCord. Hi, Gall one, one of your fans. Uh, I wanted to ask a question about uh, some of the reports that we're hearing about women who say they've been raped or assaulted on campus in the last few semesters and then recant their stories and find out if you think that's a trend and what some of the causes are for that, uh, since that's been getting some publicity in the media. It sure has been getting publicity. And in fact, um, that issue um, I, is a hard one because by the very nature of it, it gets more publicity in the media um, than proportionally in terms of actual um, incidents it deserves. And let me explain a little bit more what I mean about that. Most sexual assaults go unreported, by far the most, and you all have had many guests on this program over the years who've talked about this, but most sexual assaults occur between people who know one another, people who socialize together, people who are the same race, the same socioeconomic background, have a lot in common. And it makes it very hard for people to report those. There's a feeling among people who've been victimized that it was embarrassing and uncomfortable to experience and they don't want to bring it up. There's also counter to what many people say. People say, oh, women must want men's heads on platters after this has happened to them. My experience is actually quite the opposite. There's a feeling of I don't want to make a big deal of this. I didn't want it to happen to me and I don't want it to happen to other people. Um, so the vast majority go underreported, um, not only on our campus but nationally. And so because they aren't reported, they aren't going to make it into the media. By contrast, stranger assaults, which is unfortunately because it's been in the media, also has captured our attention. So when I say the word rape, more people think of somebody jumping out from behind the bushes with a, with a weapon, which is, of course, an extremely rare and an unusual kind of um, circumstance to occur, but they think of it because those are the ones that are more frequently reported. If a woman reports something there and then recants it, recanting can have two different causes. One can be um, saying, as we recently saw in the paper, this didn't happen. When that kind of recanting occurs, there's something else that's going on. My experience when I talk with women who've gone through that is Sometimes there's actually domestic violence occurring. Sometimes there is um, violent or difficult relationship situations threatening in the relationship, and this is a way for her to try to get some uh, response to a circumstance that might not have been the sexual assault at that moment, but there is something else that's going on that's problematic. So I encourage people to um, be thoughtful when you hear about those reports. Um, a second type of recanting is really just somebody not saying, in fact, I fabricated it, but saying I don't want to go ahead with, with pressing charges. And that can be, again, because of a, a feeling of fear or threat, um, intimidation from someone if they continue with following through with charges. So, But by the very nature of it, if you've made, it, if you've made a report and it's gotten in the news once and then you recant, it gets in the news a second time. So by the very nature of it, in fact, it gets proportionally a lot more attention in the news than even rapes that are just reported. And never mind the fact that the vast majority go unreported and so don't make it into the news. Um, I don't know if Matt or Mari wants to add to that, but that would be my response about that. I might just point out uh, as somebody who's had to cover these these sorts of situations um, – uh, there are other factors involved in this most recent case and, and that's one that affects a lot of students, not just this particular instance, but there were some mental stress issues involved 
Um, and it, it's a difficult call as to whether you cover that, but you're weighing uh, the possible repercussions of reporting that with concerns that the police were voicing that parents are calling them saying, are my kids safe? Uh, did this really happen? What's going on? And so you really have to, to balance those stresses, and it's a difficult call. Yeah, and I, I just I want to add that that is really distressing for us doing this programming because it shifts the focus. It shifts the focus to, first of all, situations that occur very infrequently, and it shifts it away from what people really need to know in order to deal with this problem on campus. It is at such a high level on this campus and across the nation that um, CDC, what I, I use the term um, epidemic, they talk about it as a camp, sexual assaults on campuses in that way. So it is a serious problem, but it is not a problem primarily in the stranger sense. So parents often ask me how safe are my students walking across campus. Not that I encourage, by the way, people to walk across campus in the dark, certainly don't walk through the woods alone at night, male or female students. But the reality is the majority of these circumstances occur when people are socializing with someone else with whom they feel they have some sense of connection. And hence the shift, by the way, and we would like to see this happen. And I might ask Matt, if you don't mind, to speak a little bit more about this. But one of the things that we talked about in changing the program is the shift from focus on the women having to sort of defend themselves. Of course, historically, that makes sense because when you're the person who's vulnerable to something happening, you want to to protect yourself. We are trying to shift the focus to the men who are getting involved in, in behaviors that can lead to this kind of thing occurring. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to wrap it up with our caller or? I think uh, I'll just say thanks for calling, Gall. Appreciate it. Okay. Let's – let's in, in, in form, formatting your comments, Matt, let's just talk about a situation that I think happens more times than not that fits into the framework that Carol's just described. Um, people are at a party. They get drunk. Um, um, a sexual interaction between a, a man and a woman um, takes place. Um, the next day or even later that evening, perhaps she says that uh, he got her drunk and, and she regrets and, and says, you know, I didn't want to participate in that activity. And he says, well, you know, she seemed like she wanted it or, you know, what. so I assume you deal with things just exactly mm-hmm. like that in your program. Yeah, very similar to that. And, and the scenario we play out has a few minor differences in the sense that both of them were drinking. We set the story up like that. Uh, she did say no. Uh, she said it verbally but also reinforced it mm-hmm. in different ways. But it was clear in the retelling of the stories how they – perceived it to be different, uh, how that was conveyed. You know, uh, she says, I said no and I meant no. Uh, he says, well, she said no, but it was kind of like, no, I don't think we should. Like a protestation of I don't want to be, you know, thought of as, as easy or a slut or, you know, mm-hmm. so no meaning, try again. And mm-hmm. so the two sides of that. And what we work with the students is begin to process through what what's actually happening. What are the real questions you should be asking? Was consent really given? Mm-hmm. And in this case, by her saying no, she clearly said, I am not consenting to this. And whether or not he chose to believe that, she didn't give consent very clearly. Mm-hmm. And we often continue with the students to talk about, you know, in the concept of consent, does the absence of a no actually mean yes? And, and that's, you know, another gray area. So if, uh, you know, two people get together, they have sex, nobody says anything, was it consensual? And there's a lot of factors to go into that, but we talk about how do you really know if something's consensual? Well, you know, by the way somebody looks at you or the way the nonverbal cues. And how do you know? That's where the room for miscommunication creeps in. So we try and point out the problems with the assumptions and the way in which we communicate and say, you know, how do you really know if consent is given and primarily gets back to asking and, and both sides. And it's like, you know, women need to convey very clearly their intentions when they're getting into this. Men need to stop, ask, and listen at the same time. It's not one's responsibility over the other. Both have a shared responsibility mm-hmm. to communicate openly and honestly and respect what's being said. Just not talking so about stop, ask, and listen is the message that you give young men. Mm-hmm. Is there kind of a catchphrase like that for women? Uh, stop, ask, and listen. Okay, same thing. <laughs> Fair enough. It works so, on both sides. Yeah, so, so – as we raise young men and young women while they're still in our homes, um, do you have suggestions on how we um, communicate this information to them? Same thing. Just say, you know, stop, ask, listen. Well, it's, and it's walking through some of the scenarios and, mm-hmm. and saying, you know, here's what's going to happen. And, and that's what we really try and do with the live characters is we, we bring it to life for them. And we have two very nice, friendly, you know, they're not 
people that we would not work with on a daily basis. So it's, it's putting it into real play for the parents to say, don't just say stop, ask, and listen. It's how do you apply this in a real scenario? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've seen the commercials where they talk about talking with drugs with your children, for example, and the father's running through a series of scenarios. He says, I come up and he pushes his son and the son says, no. He says, no, come on, just try it one more time. He says, no. And so they're role playing to go through how are you going to address these very complex situations? You know, you've been drinking a little bit. You think you know somebody. Well, this starts to happen. He puts his hand on your breast. What do you do? Are you going to say stop? Are you going to? Are you uncomfortable with it? How are you going to respond? So, yeah. I just want to add that, in response to your question, we in general are very good at supporting girls and saying, "Oh, be careful and take care of yourself." And mm-hmm. of course, when people are the people who are at risk, we say this to anybody. You know, be careful when you're crossing a street, regardless of gender. Be careful to men and women both about. Uh, walking alone at night in places where you could um, end up having your backpack stolen or something. But in this scenario, we tend to focus on on women and girls from a young age. In fact, where that plays out most clearly to me is during orientation when the parents come through to get their brochures, our brochures and material, and we're standing there passing it out. People say, oh, what what are you doing? Well, this is material and sexual assault prevention, and I can't tell you how many hundreds of times I've had parents say, oh, that's okay, I have a son. I don't need that material. And so what happens is, and it's also part of, and when people say, "Well, are my daughters safe on campus?" What they don't—they don't mean from the other from the other students, the male students. Mm-hmm. They mean from people off campus. We like to think of the predator and as other. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm talking to people about what you can say to your, to your children, talk to male children, talk to boys mm-hmm. about avoiding the kind of and, and often it's peer pressure um, originally and it can be sort of played out in a peer pressure kind of setting which is why we often see in sort of a party situation or when there's alcohol there's an attitude of conquest um, or this is okay and there's a support among the group for this behavior is okay and so I really want to see a shift in American culture to focusing on boys and young men and adult men and taking responsibility for their behavior to stop this this kind of activity. It's going to be, a, I think, a continuing focus of Take Back the Night. It's certainly something Absolutely. that Nigel's involved in. Um, you bring up an interesting an interesting point that alludes to something that uh, Matt mentioned at the very beginning of this program that I was sort of hesitant to bring up, but I think it needs to be brought up. Uh, last spring, there was an event. Uh, it may have been one of the Thursdays in black. When 131 students uh, put numbers on, they wore black Mm -hmm. to represent the actual rape statistics here on campus. Um, And some of the speakers at that event uh, were speaking about what they called the rape culture here on the uh, IU campus. And they were pushing for a program to be instituted uh, this fall um, that's, as I understand it, uh, now uh, in place at uh, Champaign-Urbana. And that program, again, as I understand it, didn't get the green light for this semester uh, what do you say, uh, Carol, we'll start with you, about this concern that IU has a, a rape culture, that they're not doing enough to be proactive, that they're putting a lot of the burden on women? Oh, absolutely. There needs to be more done on campus. I don't think um, – certainly I wouldn't say that, that we need to – we're ready. We're at a point where we can sit back and rest and say we've got it under control. Um, our numbers are not worse than other campuses. And um, so to that extent, there's a sense of we're right in there with everyone else. That's for both better and for worse. We certainly can increase the amount of programming that we do, and it would be, um, I think, very appropriate for the institution to take more responsibility. We've added in the programming and orientation. We do our program. Our program is by request only. The other student groups are doing programs on and, and policy, kind of working toward policy change that they can work toward out of their own volunteer status, but certainly the university taking more responsibility for having more institutionalized um, opportunities for people to get this information. The program that they're talking about would be presented to all students in the residence halls in, in their first year to help address a sense of encouraging a change in the culture from the very beginning of people's time here, addressing exactly these kinds of things we've been talking about. And I think Absolutely, it would be something that would be appropriate for the university to take on. I want to say we are working on developing that program. We have some of the uh, material together for doing it. We are looking at um, an opportunity for working with Residence Halls Association for putting together a program in the residence halls to do it. We probably – we don't have it for this semester. We might have a – 
we'd like to have a pilot by next semester and certainly by next fall. And is so this we're something working on Rays would be involved in? No, Rays does a program that that is sort of similar, but it is by request only. Um, we get asked by teachers, RAs, um, many graduate assistants who teach classes, and also by Greek organizations. And then we go in and we do our program. It just seems like uh, a lot. One of the things, at least, that they were asking for last spring is is along the lines of what you do, though. This sort of much more intimate focused oh, yeah. orientation that everybody gets instead of the sort of very large mass meeting where, you, where they go through a sort of... Yeah. The, let, me, let me just say that the program, in, if it were to be done in the residence halls, would be done in that small group format. And certainly the kind of thing that's done by race could be done. But right now the race group is identified as a student group that's a volunteer. volunteer. The content is absolutely the kind of thing that would be appropriate in both. Okay. I yeah. see what you're saying. We've got about uh, eight more minutes left in the program. Uh, if you want to get a last call or comment in, the number is 855-0811. Outside the Bloomington area, 877-285-9348. And via email, the address is noon at indiana.edu. Matt, you've been uh, associated with this program for years and years and years now. Uh, a series of related questions. What is it that brings you back? Have you seen any shift in the culture of the fraternity uh, since you came in that first year uh, to 2006, the uh, frat brothers that you see coming in now? Well, I mean, I would say I've seen a lot of change in the time that's been on campus. And I'll say that there has been a shift in the fraternity system. I still think, um, you know, having been a member of a fraternity on campus and a graduate advisor in a fraternity system, I've been part of that. It's something I believe strongly in, but I still feel it has a lot of need to make some serious changes. It can be a very powerful force for positive leadership and role modeling that I think with, you know, some support can definitely take in that direction. Uh, I do know that the fraternity system has has shit changed in the positive manner. I've seen a lot of things on campus, but I think it's been with a lot of help with the university collaborating with you know the support organizations on campus. I mean, um, I'll, I'll call way back when I first started here. There was a program called the Little Sisters Program within the Greek system, and it was uh, it, it was almost indentured servitude for freshmen and women who you know may want to. You know, enroll in the Greek system down the road. They would partner up with a fraternity house and you know come over and. I called that uh, the fresh meat system. It was the fresh meat system, and it, and it was a horrible system. And it was a horrible system, and it no longer exists. It, it hasn't since 1989, uh, 1989-90, I believe, was when they they you know, banned the practice of that. Um, you know, things like serenades, um, you know, for those. I think serenades are, are very positive ways for houses to connect with each other as they do these pairing for social events. But the serenades have also taken, I think, a negative social spin from time to time, reinforcing negative stereotypes. And I think that there's been some changes in those. There's a long way to go with that. But, you know, it, it's promoting a positive student culture while removing more and more the negative attributes of that. You know, it. What strikes me is that you are – you have a huge um, – I don't know, the task ahead of you I guess because you're asking people to take responsibility for their own sexuality and you're asking it of an age group that has a hard time taking responsibility in some cases for, you know, putting clean socks on every morning. I know I'm painting with a very broad, you know, a, a, a brush but um, I think that this is – uh, a daunting task. It is daunting, and, and I want to say that, from from our perspective, it's, it's this is a group, an age group, and, and a time in lifespan development of all of us that that is a is open to experimentation, mm -hmm. sexual experimentation, sexual um, interactions that of a more short term nature are absolutely the norm. Mm -hmm. That is not something that is unusual. Nor is it something that is actually, I would say, in any way aberrant. So what we're doing is we're working against sort of how – against that backdrop. How mm -hmm. do you encourage people to have relationships that are both um, maybe shorter term in nature with people they don't know so well in situations they may not be quite so comfortable having accurate or clear communication and yet also situations in which people are not getting um, trampled on? Mm -hmm. Or feeling that they have a right to take advantage of someone else because it's just sort of part of the culture. I also want to rush to say that 
we're, 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 we've talked about fraternities a couple of times. We see these problems with all student groups and fraternities sort of get the brunt of it sometimes mm-hmm. absolutely appropriately and sometimes not. And we see these problems with other groups, um, athletic teams, athletic athletes often get it and again, sometimes appropriately and sometimes not. But we see problems in residence halls. We see problems with students who live off, off campus, aren't involved with any of those kinds of groups either. Let me ask you one more question. I know safe sex has been, you know, that's gotten to be a, such a catchphrase, and we hear about it over and over again, but it seems um, like something uh, almost as important as safe sex is sober sex because oftentimes, you know, a, a lot of these other problems um, would not, wouldn't be an issue if, you were, if the participants were thinking clearly. Is that something that the program stresses or encourages or talks about? We do address alcohol. I mean, there's just absolutely, totally clear evidence across the nation that, that most of these situations, the vast majority have alcohol involved in them. Um, I also want to say, and alcohol can be a real problem. It can be a problem if, um, in terms of people's judgments, as we often say. But sometimes I don't believe that necessarily that's the case. And one of the things that people that I've said and other people said is, not every man who is um, drunk is sexually exploitive of women. Right. So certainly, even even though people drink and even though people drink socially. They're, they can also control their behavior in terms of, of interacting with people in, in this way. Sour is just – oh, I'm sorry. Isn't there um, – the vast majority of all sexual interactions on a college campus involve alcohol of some sort? Probably the, off a college campus too. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So all the positive ones as well as these negative situations. That's yeah. right. That's exactly right. We're just about out of time, just about a minute left. And I, before we get out of here, I want to make sure – we give resource information. So if mm-hmm. folks want to find out more about your group, about other programs through OWA, give me uh, a web address, uh, uh, a phone number possibly, and uh, possibly one or two events coming up. we got about 40 seconds. Uh, well, the best <laughs> way to get a hold of us is at our email address, which is raise at indiana.edu. And if you email that address, you can join a email list to get all sorts of information and dates and ways to participate and join our group and support us. And also available, you can uh, go out to www.stopcampusrape.com. It's a resource that was uh, funded through the uh, collaboration with Indiana University Department of Justice grant, and it has some resources out there as well that are available for students. So that's another resource. Okay. We're going to have to leave it there. I thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you to our three guests, Matt Donovan, Carol McCord, and Mari Kermit-Canfield. We've been talking about RAISE. We hope you'll check out their group and become involved. For Mary Catherine Carmichael, for producer Catherine Hageman, engineer Michael Pashkash, and Bob Salzberg, get well soon. I'm Will Murphy. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times.